Simply Stogies is a passion project that is fan-funded. If you enjoy the content Simply Stogies brings to you and would like to see more and different kinds of content, a website, more on-location podcasts with blenders, manufacturers, or retailers, or video reviews, please consider supporting Simply Stogies on Patreon at patreon.com slash simplystogies. Supporting Simply Stogies can get you a ton of perks, including instant access to bonus material, access to Simply Stogies Discord, including a Patreon-only channel, shoutouts on the show and social media, a monthly virtual herf with myself and other supporters, the ability to suggest cigar reviews, cool swag, or the opportunity to do a cigar review on Simply Stogies Podcast. Thank you for your consideration and your generosity. Now, on to Simply Stogies. You're listening to Simply Stogies, a monthly podcast dedicated to the cigar enthusiast. Light up a stogie, sit back and relax while James brings you along on his journey as a new cigar smoker. Simply Stogies will review cigars, discuss topics that cigar aficionados find important, and will probably learn a few things along the way. Now, here's your host of Simply Stogies, James. Welcome to Simply Stogies. I am your host, James. Before I get to the special guest, I want to thank the newest Patreon supporter of Simply Stogies, Lloyd Blankenship. Lloyd, thank you so much for your support of Simply Stogies podcast. If you'd like to become a Patreon supporter, head over to patreon.com forward slash Simply Stogies. This episode, we have a special guest, Pete Johnson of Tatuahi Cigars. I'm very lucky to have been able to sit down and talk with Pete for almost three hours. It was absolutely amazing. I want to thank him personally for giving myself and the guys over at simplystogies.club a ton of his time on a Saturday afternoon. It was fantastic the weekend before Thanksgiving. So I hope you enjoy this interview. Thanks for taking the time to to join us today for this AMA and virtual cut and light. Uh, I know you're a busy guy, so I'll try to get to this, uh, a lot of these questions and hopefully not repeat anything that uh, Eric's asked already. So, okay. um, so a lot of people may not know this, but you kind of, you started in the industry. You went from strip club bouncer, like slash <laughs> floater to a part-time retail where you were mixing pipe tobacco to a buyer. You kind of made a name for yourself as a buyer. Yeah, And now to where you're at now, like when you look back on that, how surreal is it that you kind of look at your journey and go, wow, that's where I started. And now look where I'm at. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's been, this is my 20, I'm in my 27th year in the cigar industry. Um, and yeah, I mean, I had the dream and I don't know if you've probably heard this story. I've had, I had the dream in 96, uh, actually 95 ish. Uh, but I didn't go down to the Dominican Republic until 96 to, uh, find a, a person that could make me a cigar 
so I could put it on the market with the help of my my guitar player's father, who was a pretty big QVC guy, and he had money. And he's like, "Here, you're in the cigar business. Go, let's let's put a cigar together." I go, "Well, I I don't want to just go buy a cigar off of someone's shelf. I wanna I wanna actually go and put something together." And um, of course, I was spending most of the time with the Fuente family, and they were like way too busy <laughs> to do anything for new people. Um, even though they're like, Hey, we, we wish we could, but we're, we're just swamped right now. Um, and I ended up at a few other factories that were willing to do it. Uh, one of them actually, uh, um, was Hochi Blanco who was doing some outrageous things now. And fast forward there, if you think about it, I thought he was doing great things in 96 and no one was paying attention to him. And now he's like the hottest shit on the market. Am I allowed to swear, right? You are. Yes, you are. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, he's he's wildly popular, and he's still a great dude. I mean, we we talk about the, the time I went down there, and it's it's surreal to think about how how naive and young I was back then. And even when I got back from that trip, I, I told my, my uh, buddy's father, I said, yeah, we're not going to find anybody to make us a cigar because – I just wasn't ready for it. Like I, it wasn't, it wasn't even in my wheelhouse. Like the fathom, like, okay, this is going to happen because I knew I wasn't ready for it. So I, I took the time to grow a little bit more and, you know, become an adult. So that's when I think it was like 2000 or 2001. I, I ran into Christian Eroa and uh, we were having a conversation in at the Grand Avenue in Beverly Hills and at that time, I was their director of retail. And Christian literally said, hey, I'm going to start this new company. I'd like you to be involved. Well, there was one other guy that was going to be involved in, in the company that I didn't like. And I just told Christian, I said, listen, man, it's, I would love to, but it's not a good fit for me. Um, so I passed on that, too. And I waited, and I waited. And in early 2003, um, a buddy of mine called, you've heard this story, a buddy of mine called, and he was an old sales rep for Viazon. If you know Viazon, it was what uh, is part of General Cigar. They did Hoyo and Punch back in the old days um, and Bansies and all these other brands. Um, he goes, you still want to make a cigar? I go, no, nah, I kind of lost my, my dream to do it. I'm, I'm thinking about getting out of the cigar industry. <laughs> wow. I was literally, I, was, I knew I was never going to own a store. Uh, I didn't have the money to start up a store. I, I knew I wasn't going to own a store. Um, I, I, I felt like I was going to be, you know, behind someone's, someone else's counter for the rest of my life. And and then in walked Pepin Garcia. And I didn't know who the hell he was. I, no one did at the time. And within a, you know, a few-minute conversation, he rolled me this cigar. I go, holy shit, I'm going to make a cigar with this guy. Wow. I went home and I was actually married at the time uh, to a, my previous wife. And I said, I'm going to, I'm going to make uh, a cigar. And she goes, are you crazy? I go, yeah, a little, but I know if I can't sell any of them, I can smoke them all because they, they were, they were geared to my palate. And right. like, I'm like, this is exactly what I want in a cigar. And over the years I've kind of lost that way a little bit. Like I've started experimenting too much. And that's why when I go back to the 15th anniversary, that's why I decided to go back to my roots and kind of go back to why I made 
why I started with this brand, which was really following the old Cuban stuff. I kind of want to touch on that because over your career, you've been called a disruptor in the cigar industry. <laughs> uh, but recently, I've actually heard you discuss the old ways and, and the nostalgia of it. In fact, uh, wasn't the original motto, uh, uh, motto of Tatawahi old world for a new generation or something to that effect? Yeah, yeah that, that was the original tagline since so, 2003. So how do you walk that line between being the disruptor of the, of the industry and then also being the guardian of the old ways? I mean, we just heard you discuss uh, hand-rolled and how you, you know, wanted to get that story out of all these people. And there were still people you missed and you, you want to go back and touch on those folks. So you've gone from now disruptor of the industry to guardian of the old ways and saving the knowledge and passing it on. How do you walk that line? Uh, you know what? I, again, I got, I got a little lost and it all started with a thing called the monsters. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what's so what's funny about the monsters though, even though, you know, I had an alternative name, Tatawai. I mean, what does it mean? Tattoo, right? Who right. is going to call a cigar tattoo? And the only reason why I called it tattoo is because the old guys that I looked up to, my mentors nicknamed me Tattoo Pete because I was the only guy with tattoos that would walk the trade show floor. Like back then, I was the only guy on the show floor that had tattoos. So they knew, like, oh, the tattoo kid. Like <laughs> there was no other tattoo kid on the floor. So I grew up following these, these great people and had a, I still have a lot of respect for them. And, you know, to be in their presence and to have them want to sit down and have a cigar with you, you know, later on in life, you still get nervous like a little kid that, that, that appreciates the fact that they took you in under their wing. I mean, the Fuente family was really kind to me early on. Um, and, you know, the, Robbie from Ashton, uh, Lito Gomez, uh, Manolo Casada, all these people were like the coolest people in the world. And I still have a lot of respect for him. Um, so when I started doing these crazy projects like the Monsters, I still followed tradition when it came to the blending of the cigar. I just put it in funky packaging. <laughs> even even like uh, like the Oliva Tobacco family, they would come over to the factory in Nicaragua while I wasn't there, and they would go, "What's Pete, what's Pete coming up with now?" And Jaime would go, Jaime and Pabin would show him the coffin for Frank and go, "What is he crazy?" <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you know, I still, I'll tell you, the last time I I saw the old man Fuente. Um, we kind of ran into each other at a restaurant. We were both having dinners. I was having a bunch of my customers in a room and the Fuente family was having a bunch of customers in there in a separate room at the same restaurant. And I think he was walking back from the bathroom. He's like, Hey Pete. And I'm like, Holy shit. I got nervous around him. Like, I mean, it's, it's like, Hey, do you mind coming in so I can introduce you to the, the group I'm, I'm sitting with? And he's like, absolutely not. You're like, come on, I'll, I'll do whatever you need. Just, I don't know, having respect for them and following their path in, in the fact that they've always had respect for the people that supported them. Uh, I don't know. That's a lesson that I've learned and I, I, keep, uh, I keep with. And so I want to get to that because I know you've got an Opus X tattoo 
And so we'll get to that and your influences. But before we do, I want to like, is it more surreal for you to look back on your journey and where you've come from and where you're at? Or is it more surreal for you to look at the effect that you've had on the industry and maybe even those around you like the, the Fuente family and the Garcias and, and which, which, which one affects you more? I think, I think uh, more than anything is standing in a room with Carlito, Lido, um, you know, George Padron, and all these people, and Pepin and Jaime, and and they all consider me a peer. I think that's the most surreal thing. Like before, I was a client, but now they've kind of put me into this, you know, different category. I think that's the most surreal thing. Um, I think we, when we were in Germany for our trade show over there, um, Carlito was like the biggest cheerleader uh, for everybody that got on stage and won an award. And, you know, I got off a of stage getting my award and he says, I'm really proud of you. I said, she's like, <laughs> wow. Like what the fuck, you know, <laughs> that's gotta be a huge honor, right? Cause these are guys you look up to and you, and now they're telling you, Hey, we're really proud of where you're at. That's gotta feel really good. Yeah, I mean, I, I it's funny because uh, I uh, <laughs> this year I got voted earlier this year. Robbie Levin called me. It was actually at the end of last year, which was kind of a funny story. He called me and he just says, congratulations. And I was like, wait a second. What do you know that I don't know? I, I thought he was going to tell me I got number one in Cigar Aficionado or something. Right. It was just one of those funny like moments. He's like, congratulations, because the number one hadn't been released yet. And he called me to say congratulations. I'm like, well, I know Robbie's good friends with Marvin. Maybe he knows something. And I go, congratulations on what? He goes, well, me and the rest of the guys voted you on the board of the CRA. And I go, oh, okay. <laughs> I go, <laughs> I go, I was, I was hoping for something else. <laughs> but, um, but when he said, he goes, yeah, I go, well, who's on the board and he goes, you know, Carlito, Jorge, uh, you know, myself, Lito, we all unanimously voted you on the board. I was like, really? You want me in the room? He goes, we need some fresh blood. And they still call me fresh blood, which is really great. <laughs> Makes you feel young, right? <laughs> I'll be 49 in a couple of weeks. Um, but, uh, you know, we need some fresh blood and some fresh opinions. And I, uh, that was like one of the biggest honors I've ever had in my life is that they, they welcomed me in to give opinions on something that I assumed that they would be more than capable to handle. That's awesome. So I, I kind of want to <laughs> have a question about the industry as a whole, because I've heard it described as everybody sitting at a table and above the table, everyone's very polite and everyone's very um, like helpful and they want to get along. But under the table, everybody has their guns drawn and it's kind of like the old West. Is that, <laughs> is, is that accurate or not? Nah, man. I mean, I would say early on, um, I'll tell you early on when, when, you know, the, when the, the Garcia family, Pepina Jaime and, you know, with my brand coming out, uh, when they first showed up on the scene, there was a lot of people like, who are these people and what are they doing in our industry? They knew me, but they didn't know this family that just came over from Cuba. 
So it was one of those struggles for me because, you know, my mentors were kind of skeptical about who these, who these, you know, infiltrators were. Right. And then over the years when they finally started to realize that, you know, they're there to do good things in the industry and grow great tobacco and not, you know, not put shit in a box. Um, for me, the most pleasant time was to see, you know, Jaime and Pepin having conversations with Jorge Padron or Carlito Fuente, you know, like they were now, I was always part of that group, but I was the, the kid looking up to these, these towers. And all of a sudden the family that I counted on and was very proud to work with was finally being, you know, accepted into that group also. So that, that was one of my proudest moments in the industry just knowing that uh, I picked a good family to work with and uh, that, that other great manufacturers accepted them also as great manufacturers. Uh, this actually, this, this question kind of ties into it. And it comes from uh, one of our members Enrich two thirty nine. And if it's been asked before, I apologize, but why do you not seem to do many collaborations then with, with other people in the industry, especially for example, uh, John Huber, you guys are great friends, which by the way, he says, hi, uh, we <laughs> talked to him a couple of weeks ago. Uh, so why not a collaboration with some of these folks? Well, you know, John, John's got a lot of collaborations going on himself. Um, I, when John was looking for a factory originally, he came to me and I made him actually some sample blends, um, uh, from the Garcias. He ended up telling me that he went with Ernesto because Ernesto one, he felt like he would be in a house where there wasn't too crowded. Sure. And that was the first time Ernesto was ever going to make a private label for someone, which was really cool for John. So I was actually very happy for him. And I figured, you know, maybe this is not the time anyways, because it was a little crowded in the factory and we all had a lot of things going on. Fast forward a couple of years later, John came to me and said, uh, Hey, uh, you think, you think, uh, you can have that conversation with the Garcias again to, to have, uh, maybe us come down and discuss about making cigars with him. I said, absolutely. Because John's a, a friend, you know, like I said, absolutely. And, uh, you know, we, I actually, I remember being in the same room when he, when Jaime and Pepin were literally putting, actually Jaime was putting them together, putting together their first blends for them. Um, and John, I mean, I'll probably butcher this, but John probably was on his third or fourth iteration of one of the cigars. And he goes, man, I really like this. And I said, uh, he goes, I go, what's the problem then? He goes, he goes, well, it's the only, it's, it's the only, it's the third cigar. Like it's not even like I didn't go through 20 different blends to find <laughs> right. the one cigar. I go, dude, sometimes you can't overthink it. Like if you believe that that's the one go with that one, like right. you start overthinking, you'll never put a cigar out. I mean, you, you, you'll eventually, find that blend that nails you in the face and goes, wow, that's exactly what I've been missing. And sometimes you, if you go, Oh, well maybe I can make it sweeter. And you're like, get the fuck out of here. Like, just, just <laughs> like literally just like, if it nailed you at that point, there's not, there's nothing better than you can change. Like right now, this, this new cob I want that I'm smoking, the blend's been in the factory since 2000 five so it's not like it's it's a mystery to me so when i make a new size in it 
and I taste the cigar and I light it up. I'm like, wow, that's exactly what I'm looking for. You know, that's exactly what Kalai Wan represents. And then I say to myself, I think this might even be better than what I'm remembering about original Kalai Wan. Then I'm never going to go back to the factory and say, hey, you know what? I think we should change that. No way. <laughs> right. Like, I got one sample, 20 cigars, and this cigar is done for me. Like, it's, it's going in production uh, in the next, you know, in the next couple weeks. Like, I'm not, I'm not going to sit there and overthink, like, what should I do to make Kabai one better? It's already a great cigar. That's why it's lasted 15 years. Well, well that's a different, it's a little bit of a different process than your first cigar, because your first cigar, when you finally uh, got to tell Papine, hey, like, just do what you want, do what you do, and let me taste that. He made, he made 10 for you, and you smoked those over the course of a week, and you called him back, and you're like, ah, eh, this is a little thin. So does that still happen from time to time where you like, no, nope, this is it. I'm done overthinking it. And then you have another and you'll. So again, that was a brand new cigar. And I wanted to make sure the right cigar was put together the first time. Um, yeah. that I don't know. I, you've heard that story where it actually kind of had like, it started thinning out the, the character and the complexity thinned out to where it almost had this cigarette quality to it. And I said, I needed to have a little bit more kick. So when it ages, it will mellow down to a nice rounded full bodied cigar. Um, now, like if I take the same blend, that has been working for 15 years and I put it in a new size and I taste it and it's good. I know that it's going to carry through. Gotcha. Like I don't have to, I don't have to overthink that. So it just comes with experience then. Like, you know what you're dealing with and how that's going to, how that's going to age. Yeah, and then sometimes, you know, like certain cigars that I'm playing around with in, in Miami, I know the base of the blend is pretty solid. To It could age for 10, 15 years and, and still be hardy. I, uh, I don't overthink it because I, I actually take the time and make those samples and I let them sit for a long period of time. And then I try them again to make sure they're still carrying through. Um, I know that those cigars that are built with a certain structure to them, that they're going to age with a lot of potential and what you might be missing in aroma off the foot of the cigar early on might carry over, you know, in a couple months when it starts to sit in the box or, you know, just relaxing, uh, with, uh, you know, on cedar or whatever, just to carry those other flavors to it. Um, yeah, this cow I won again, uh, I got these samples in, uh, last Monday and I fell in love with them and I'm smoking them. Like I've already made the cliches and the artwork for the bands, the whole thing uh, this week, but I'm holding to send the cliches to the factory and, and the order to the factory until I absolutely know for sure. That's why it'll be another two weeks before I decide so far. Everyone I light up, I'm very happy with. Good. How do you approach like from an artist standpoint, how do you approach what it is you do? What it is you, what, like, is there a certain profile you look for? Um, I know we've already talked about how some of your uh, cigars differ in profiles. So when you're, when you're, you know, experimenting, how is that different from what you, how you started? Like how, what's that, what's that approach look like? Um, uh, for me, a lot of the times it's, uh, the expression of a making a new meal 
or writing a new song, you're not going to, you're not going to always use the same ingredients. You're not going to always use the same chords. Um, so when I go into a cigar, I kind of go into it knowing like, okay, I want this cigar to be a milder cigar. Like I know going in right away, like, okay, this is going to be a mild cigar. This is the style I want this cigar to be. And then I start playing around with, you know, the base. I use, I use Brown Label Miami as the core. That's classic, you know, Seiko Visa Lajero blending. I use that as the core and I dissect the core and I go up and down the plant to find, okay, that's where it needs to, you know, position if I want it to be mild. So it's based off the same core, just up and down those plants. And maybe I'll change wrappers or, uh, you know, binders even sometimes um, just to give it a different flavor characteristic. So when you talk about that and you talk about going up and down the plant, it, it to me, it reminds me of chord progressions musically. Mm-hmm. And you used to play in a band and you love music. I mean, does that have an influence on you? Like oh music? yeah, still. Yeah, still. I, I, I say it all the time. It's uh, right. Making a new cigar is like writing a new song. You know, I use the food thing a lot because I don't want to eat pizza for every meal and, sure. or a steak. I don't want to have a steak dinner for every meal. And I consider, you know, my Brown label, like my steak dinner. So are there any bands that have had an influence on you? I know I, when we talk to somebody like John Huber and it's just throughout all everything that he does with cigars, the musical influence from Johnny Cash, is there anything like that for you? Because you, I, you play bass. I play bass. Music is huge for me. It seems to be huge for you. Anything like that for you? I, I just love music. So I, I kind of go all over the place. Um, I don't think I've ever had a song that has inspired me to make a cigar like John has. Um, you know, like John's always had that theme of using, he's heard a song. He's like, man, I'd love to have a cigar to sit down and listen to this song with, you know, um, I, I'm just a big music fan. And I, I kind of go all over the place when it comes to music. It, if it's good, it's good. It's kind of like cigars for me. If, if they're good, they're good. If they're bad, they're bad. And there's some music I don't listen to because it, I don't think it's good. So, right. There's some that's just objectively bad. Yeah, I will tell you a funny story. You remember Nickelback, right? Oh, well, who can forget? <laughs> when Nickelback first came out, I literally told all my friends, I go, I got to believe that one of those guys in the band, his uncle's the head of the label. <laughs> and that's a favorite. And they got a favor, and and of course, you know, they ended up becoming huge. But I was like, I don't know, man. Something about this doesn't work for me. (laughs) It doesn't work for a lot of people anymore, thankfully. Uh, Jay Voorhees, LJ52, one of our members wants to know, who, in your opinion, is the best bass player of all time? Oh, man, that's tough. I went through just recently, someone asked me to put my top five. I was like, I don't know. Um. (laughs) I mean, I, I I love all different style of you know John Entwistle, uh, John Paul Jones. You're talking uh, Lemmy from Motorhead. Uh, Duff McKagan was always a big inspiration for me because I was a Guns fan. Yep. And plus, I thought Duff was like a really solid bass player. I always found that a lot of the bass players that were really solid bass players were guitar players first, though, <laughs> and their their fingers worked better than most bass players. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> for yeah, I. I <laughs> Yeah, it's funny you say that. Just because my background in music, that's I find that to be 
true as well. Uh, like I have guitars now and, you know, my fingers are kind of thick and I have a hard time, you know, doing, doing certain chords because my fingers don't fit on the frets that well. Like how, how am I supposed to cramp that much into a small space? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. I, I gave up. I'm like, I'm just gonna stick to bass. It's, it's, <laughs> it's so much easier, so much easier. So let's talk about your, uh, you know, uh, the influences then from your dogs because I know your dogs have had a huge influence on the brand. You can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I'm I'm a dog lover. I mean, I, I when I was uh, when I was still running around the Sunset Strip. Um, playing music at the whiskey and the Roxy and the Troubadour and stuff like that. Um, I had my first Rottweiler named Hunter and that was like my, I would take him up to the strip and we would walk the sunset strip together and pass out flyers together. I mean, like that dog was my world. Uh, so when he passed away, that, that kind of hit me hard, like really hard. Um, it, uh, it was one of those things that like, part of my history of growing up is gone and I still had my, my little girl Havana, um, which was, she was still around, but Hunter was like a big part of my life. So when I started the line, uh, it, I happened to meet Pepin literally a month later and I, I made sure that I, you know, I'm going to dedicate this line to him. And that's why it's called the selection of Hunter, not the selection of the Hunter. Um, so if you look at the translation, it doesn't translate correctly because everyone's right. like, "Oh no, you need Del Casador." I go, "No, it's De Casador because it's of Hunter, not the Hunter." And so every time a dog would pass away, I was like, "You know what? That's my that's my thing. I'm gonna make a cigar for every, like every dog gets a cigar." Um, so we uh, Dan surrogates Dan lost his dog Kenji. When was it? Um, earlier this year. And that, that hit him pretty hard, too, because that was his, you know, first dog of, you know, that he had for a long time. And um, so I was like, dude, every every dog gets a cigar. Let's make a surrogate. And he came up with a surrogate AKC, a Kenji cigar, but also AKC because you think of the registration. Right. And um, it's actually launching uh, next week. Oh, nice. Uh, Dan's going to hit it off off of uh, his website, NHC, New Havana Cigars. But then after that, he's going to use it for surrogate-based events. Uh, so you can only get him if it's a, a surrogate-based event. Uh, anytime he goes out to do an event, he always has uh, – he'll have boxes of, of those cigars available for his events. And uh, they, will, like, they won't be at my events unless I'm working with Dan. Okay. So you get you get them to kind of live on a little bit uh, through what you're doing, and so it's a huge influence. Um, same way with your tattoos; those tattoos is a huge influence on you. And we you talked a little bit about the Fuente family, and you have a the Opus X tattoo. And uh, isn't it true when they first saw that you had that, they were like, "You're crazy." Yeah. No. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there's there was actually a segment of it in the documentary that we actually pulled out because we figured. If we wanted to do, you know, more episodes later on, we could do a an Opus X episode just by itself because there's so much history to that brand and so many stories that revolved around it that uh, it would be a cool, a cool extra like half hour, forty five minute documentary. Um, but yeah, they they thought I was pretty nuts, 
but it was funny because everybody, every other cigar company that was around when when it, when they saw it, um, wanted me to go get a tattoo of their brand too. And I was like, no, I did this for a reason. Right. Right, because it's very personal to you. Just like cigars are personal for you, this is personal for you, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. Do you still get an opportunity? Because I, I, I heard you talk about when you first started smoking cigars that you, you loved it because you could sit down and relax. And it was just, do you still get those opportunities to sit down? It's just you, your thoughts, and a cigar? Oh, yeah, all the time. <laughs> okay. All the time. I mean, the, the funny part is is that you know I'm surrounded by a Cuban family now. And... Um, you know, of course, my wife, she, she uh, speaks fluent English, but uh, the rest of the family doesn't speak that much. <laughs> and uh, sometimes they'll be in a conversation, and I'll be zoning out in my own little world thinking about different things, sometimes even you know, writing down notes of you know, a, new, a new product that I want to put together. Um, but I do it. Uh, I have a pretty peaceful... Uh, a patio here in Miami that uh, I like to just sit down, sit on and, and just kind of mellow with a drink by my side and a, a cigar in my hand. And sometimes I'll disappear for a few hours and my wife will go, where were you? I was in the tiki <laughs> just smoking. I heard recently on a podcast you did earlier this year that you said you were scared. You were, you were afraid for the future. Yeah. Are- are you are you still and is that is that the FDA is it the is it the industry like what is it that kind of that you look at and you're you're kind of wary of it I mean the FDA is a big problem I mean uh, we're in a a world of hurt when it comes to you know that that whole thing our legal bills that that uh that have been building up not mine personally but the organizations legal bills that have been building up to uh to fight the FDA are outrageous you know, when you talk about a lawsuit that was co- supposed to cost about 1.2 million, turn into 3.6 very quickly. Um, I think what I'm most scared and most frustrated about is that there's there's not a lot of participation in the industry. There's a lot of people that are, you know, making a lot of money off the industry and selling a lot of cigars, but they don't participate in the fight um so I, I get a little frustrated and upset by that because i want i want everybody to join in and and pitch in uh, to help fight uh this this evil empire that we're dealing with um because without everybody's participation we just can't sustain the uh the amount of money that has to be spent on uh, these legal bills i mean literally about 14 companies are are flipping the bill for everybody uh, I happen to be on that list of 14, and I'm the smallest guy in the room. But it, it doesn't matter how much you chip in as long as it's something. It's necessary that everybody chips in to fight because we have one great lawyer that's been litigating this whole thing that has gotten us a lot of stays uh, on rulings, and uh, he's confident that he can continue getting them and confident that there's a chance that we could battle this but we need the money to do it. Um, I mean, you can't really, the whole industry can't rely on those 14 companies. Everybody's got to chip in. 
how do you get the rest of the industry to do that? But as somebody who smokes all, a lot of these brands that may not participate, it can a grassroots movement from the consumer saying, hey, you guys have got to get in the fight. Was that something that would help? I mean, the CRA is doing its thing. Yeah, the but- CRA is doing a lot. Uh, and I, I told you I was part of the board of the CRA now. And I'm, I see a lot more information now. So I'm getting, you know, a, a big wake up call when it comes to all this. And that whole thing scares me because, again, I've, the amount of money I've pitched in this year, um, I can't sustain that every year. It, it's just not in my budget. It's impossible for any small company of my size to do. Um, I would say that if I could get away with half of that, I'd be very happy. And I don't see why, you know, companies that are relatively similar in size to mine that wouldn't be able to do even half of what I'm putting. Right. So I think, I think the CRA is doing a good job. I think, you know, that we're, we're actually fixing a lot of maybe issues that the CRA had and, and reaching out better um, to a lot of the smaller manufacturers. And we're hoping that uh, everybody realizes that this, that this, this, this fight is a real fight and the money is going towards the fight and it's not going into someone's pocket. So where do you see the industry then in 20 years? <laughs> uh, I would hope that it's still here and stronger. Where do you see Tatawahi in 20 years? <laughs> Let's see if I make it 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> well, I sometimes have that same feeling. Santum 2, one of our members, had, uh, had a question. There was a rumor in 2018 that the Saints and Sinners Club was going to be closed. Of course, that didn't happen. Do you have any future plans for that club? I will, I, I'll say this on, on record and, and kind of apologize to the members. You know, now, so Casper uh, is still working with Saints and Sinners. His brother Kyle is still working with Saints and Sinners. Uh, Ali is still working with Saints and Sinners, who does our, our platform and everything who's also a partner with it, with um, both Casper and I. And, um, but all, all of us have full-time jobs and we probably neglected a few things this year. You know, everybody's been very busy. Casper works for universal music now, uh, uh, has a very big job and a very uh, time demanding job at universal music. Kyle works for a merchandising company out of London. That's very demanding for him, but he, he's still on, the Saints and Sinners uh, payroll, for lack of better words, but he still um, is, you know, geared to making sure that Saints and Sinners moves forward. Ali owns a company called Trendy Butler. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's a, it's a, uh, you know, monthly subscription for clothes, and that's taken a lot of his time. So to get us all in a room has been tough. Um, but next year we have big plans for the ten-year anniversary. And we hope that we can continue, but, uh, you know, it's, it's really based on, um, the consumer response. And also I think it's based on the patience of the consumers that, you know, like, I think, I, I think that this year, um, we might've let a lot of people down, uh, not so much with what they got, but with, uh, maybe the focus from everybody. And I think next year we have a meeting coming up in a few weeks when I get to Los Angeles so we can get back to focusing uh, and make sure we allocate enough time uh, for the club. So, All right. Uh, any plans for another uh, bus tour? 
<laughs> we, we asked about it. I, I, that was a Casper project. That was his brainchild. And uh, we originally had the plan to do that in, I want to say 2013. Um, but it, I just didn't think it was the time for it. Um, maybe it was earlier than that, actually. Oh, no, it was before that. It was 2012. Um, I had that, but Casper came up with the idea and we were, we were going to be crazy and do 19 cities. Wow. And, uh, I decided that it just wasn't the right time for it. And the few tours that we did, I thought were the perfect amount of time. And I, I thought it was a great way to get the word out and the buzz around the brand. Um, and it got a lot of people excited. Um, uh, hopefully maybe one day we can do another one, but I don't know when. Okay. Uh, this question comes from uh, One World. Uh, he wants to know, uh, apart from the Escasos Tea, which is a double Corona, what other cigars have you incorporated the Cuban Vitolas in? Uh, and do you have any plans for more in the future? Well, I mean, uh, all the original brown label, you know, line was based off of Cuban old Cuban Vitolas, um, very traditional Cuban Vitolas. I. Even if you look at the Havana Six, they're all based off of old Cuban Batolas. I usually stick to the, the the wheel. You know, the template is there. I think, you know, to, to steer around it, you know, I, I like sticking with the template. So I, I use I use Cuban Batolas everywhere. Even if they're dressed a little differently, it's usually probably a Cuban Batola. Administrator wants to know what your thoughts are on the current state of tobacco that you use in your blends. And if you feel there were previous years where you were able to produce certain profiles and you can't anymore, or is there enough quality leaf to recreate some specific blends from the past? No, no. I think I have better tobacco now than I've ever had. Um, a Jaime and Pepin are growing, I want to say probably 1200 acres of tobacco every year in oh. Nicaragua. Um, so now we now have like a consistent, you know, supply chain of great leaf. And now we can go to certain farms that we've always used in certain blends and make sure that, okay, this is where this blend comes from. This is where we utilize this Lajero or this Viso from. Um, there's no shortage right now. And now that they're growing shade grown wrappers, it actually can bring me back to the original blend of Tatawai Brown Label. Um, which was Corojo 99, uh, shade grown. So if you think about it, I'm not going to, I'm not going to get rid of the Habano version because I've been making that since 2000, late 2006, early 2007. And in the interim, we, we ended up having a hybrid leaf in between those two leaves. Like I, I've always been very open with like, if I'm changing something, I tell people about it because I don't want to be caught in a lie later on. It's just easy to be up forward, you know, up front and forward with it. So what I'm working on now is to come out with a new series called Edición ERH for El Rey de los Habanos, which takes me back to the original, original blend with the Crow uh, Shade Grown. It will mimic all the sizes in the brown label line, but now it's a completely different expression because the wrapper has now changed. And it's amazing. It's amazing what wrapper can do uh, to change a blend. That's why if you look at the Kohonu 12s with the three different wrappers, they're the same internal blend. It's just the wrapper changed. And each one of those cigars tastes completely different. I, I want to talk about your your uh, 
the, the band for just a second. Uh, Enrich239 asks, uh, why don't you put the name of the blend uh, or the name of the cigar on the band instead of using the color coding, which he's having a hard time telling apart? Oh, with the uh, Saints and Sinners. Uh, I don't know, or just uh, like, so sometimes I know like with the Monster series, it says Monster on it. Yeah, I mean, with the Monster stuff, it, it's always been a mystery. I tell everybody the rapper, uh, but I, I've never really divulged what's, what's in the filler. It's very traditional. And a lot of times it's based off of a regular production cigar, but maybe with a different rapper. Um, yeah, uh, <laughs> pretty open with with blends though if someone wants a question about a blend i'll tell you i'll tell you the base of it i won't tell you where the the leaves are placed a lot of times saints and sinners the saints and sinners club wants to know what's in their kit and there's one two three four and five with different colorways but they're always curious like what they are and we used to we used to tell everybody what what they were but in the last couple years uh i've i've played a game of it may or may not be (laughs) keep them guessing Keep them guessing. I know the monsters uh, is your nightmare. I've heard I've heard you call it your nightmare, and I think you know I, most of us are familiar with why. But uh, Funatech wants to know if you would uh, think about re-releasing the Pudgy Monsters or Little Monsters sampler, either as it was or with the newer cigars included. And then he says yes, please. Uh, and if not, are there any plans for any kind of monster sampler in the future? Well, no one knows this yet, but I I will be producing some type of project next year i mean right now the hope is to be able to do all 13 sizes in a a different format oh wow all 13 blends in a different format because the 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 plan for 2021 is to go back to frank again oh nice my my caveat that for that is that as long as i have the broadleaf to do jason and frank I know I'll have the the broadleaf to do the bride because that's a lower priming and the the wrapper will be uh, a little easier to get to early on. But whether or not the processing on the the new leaf that Jaime secured will be close enough to to make Frank and Jason. The plan is to to do that next year, but (laughs) the plan's changed a few (laughs) times over the last few weeks. Right. Well, I know how that goes as well. Um, One World has a request. Uh, can you make a Simply Stoke, Stogie's exclusive cigar for us? Maybe some old blends lying around. Uh, it used to be a thing on our cigars, and then it disappeared. Uh, and if he's not mistaken, there were four or five our cigar exclusive cigars, and one of them was a BLTC CFED collaboration. I, I, did you guys do some collaborations with people? I didn't even know. I think our cigars did, for sure. We haven't yet, but I think that's what he's asking is, hey, want to do an exclusive one for us? <laughs> yeah, I... You know, it's funny. I got a phone call from a, a big retailer today uh, seeing if I could make a very small run of something um, for a big chain of uh, retail stores. Uh, when he's talking about a small run, it would be like literally like 300 cigars. Oh, wow. <laughs> Just to kind of entice uh, some people on a certain product. And I, it's kind of up in the air. I don't know if I'll do it, but uh, I, I've kind of gotten away from the collaboration thing Um all, mainly because of, uh, you know, I've done collaborations in the past and I've always seemed to lose focus on what's most important, which is making sure my company, um, 
you know, works perfect and survives and that my employees are still getting, you know, paid. <laughs> and when I start feeding other machines, it takes away from my brand as a whole. Right. I did the Henry Clay project with Altadis and I thought it was a lot of fun, but I think it took away from the main purpose of my brand, which is to promote my brand first and to make sure my employees were, were solid. But that Henry Clay project was pretty personal for you because of your history with that cigar, with the Henry Clay cigar, right? Yeah, that was a fun project. I mean, I did it because of, of my my love for Henry Clay when I was younger. Um, and they asked me to do another one. I, I told them, I said, not at this time. I'm just not in my wheelhouse. And they came to me earlier this year to do another project, and I told them no again. Um, again, the most important thing for me is to <laughs> is to concentrate on the product that works really well. And that's, uh, you know, trying to make sure that my core lines are consistent. And, uh, I think without a solid core, I could do a billion, uh, limited editions and I'd, I would be known as a limited edition company. And I really want to be known as a core line company with the occasional limited edition. I think that's a good distinction to make. There are a lot. I, I mean, we talked about this with John Huber. There's a lot of people jumping the shark with limited editions. So, I I, li- I like where your head's at with that a lot. I think a lot of people do. There's a lot of respect for that uh, from the consumer side because we know what we're going to get from you, and it's always consistent. Yeah, I mean, I, it, it's uh, for a while people were like they forgot about brown label, the original brown labels in Miami. People started forgetting about. It. I said this doesn't make sense. Like this is, this is like supposed to be my workhorse and this is where the brand started. So that should be, I mean, yeah, I can make a Chuck and Tiff and a Michael and you know, those are, those are for fun and those are to help promote the brand as a whole. But the most important thing is for someone to pick up a Taino and go, wow, that's a great cigar. And I didn't have to pay that much money for it compared to, one of the limited editions. Like if you look at the Taino in Miami, it's uh, what, 13 or $14 made in Miami. And to me, it's, it's probably one of the best cigars that we make. And it, it should be recognized as one of those best cigars. It, and if you look, if you look at Frank, Frank was based off the Taino, but with Broadleaf. So uh, when I told you, I always, kind of dig into the repertoire to like play around with the original cigar and with a twist. Frank was a perfect example because that was a Taino with broadleaf and box press. That's it. And that's what you do with, with wines as well. Right. Cause you'll, 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 you'll taste them. I, I heard, I heard the story with, with your wife and how she picked wine, uh, picked her wine. And so you take the 30%, the 30 or 35, 35, and then 40, and 35, 30, 35 and 30, 30. Yeah. 35, 35, 30 math is hard for me. Uh, <laughs> and so I'd never be good at what you do when it comes to wines, but then you pick that. So is it the same approach then with, with the, the monster series where you just kind of tweak it just a little bit, take things away, add things in. Because I want it to be an expression of, of something I know that works. Um, I don't think I've gone crazy with with any monster blends they've always been based off of something that i know that's solid for me and i'm actually hoping that uh, these two new kabai one vitolas that i'm doing for the 15th anniversary of kabai one i'm hoping it brings attention back to the kabai one line because kabai one was 
one of those cigars that, that still does very well in certain markets, but it's, it's not as well received across the whole country. And if you look at like the Guapo in the Cabo Juan line, that made the top 25 of Cigar Aficionado twice, not just once. It actually made it on the, the list twice. Um, and that's, that says something about the quality and the consistency of the brand. Uh, but it, you know, I guess if I got a number one on it, people would still be smoking it. But uh, I mean, that, that's what I love about what the Garcias did with Florida Las Antillas. They got number one. They still keep it, you know, one of their most prized cigars. And it's still the probably the best-selling number one cigar ever in the history of Cigar Aficionado number ones. And it still tastes the same. Right. Like you can always count on it. It's a classic medium. Like it's a cigar for everybody. And I mean, when you can find that cigar that for everybody, that's why if you look at my original Brown label, I'm a talker. So I'll, I'll jump around a lot. You're fine. If you look at my original Brown label, the reason why I started Havana six was because people thought that the Brown label was too strong. But that's the original reason why I started Cobb I One, because I needed a different expression of what we were doing in a lighter body cigar, but with flavor to give like an entry point to a cigar smoker. The problem with Cobb I One is it didn't say Tatuai. That's the first thing everybody said. I was like, well, it doesn't taste like a Tatuai. I go, it's not supposed to. It's never supposed to be, it's, it's not supposed to be confused with Tatuai. It's supposed to be its own identity. Uh, so when I did the Havana six, it was like, okay, I'm going to give them a tatuai, but I'm going to give them a tatuai that's milder as the entry for, for the Brown label, because the Brown label was too strong for a lot of people. Here's the perfect way to give them a milder version of Brown label, which is basically Brown label without Lajero. That's when I talked about going up and down the plant. I literally right. stripped the Lajero out and I replaced it with a Viso. And that's where Havana six is. Wow. So I, I don't want to keep you too much longer, but your journey, like we, like I talked about here. when I first I'm here. jumped I, on. I actually want to get into the cigar and keep talking. Where does the journey take you from here, from from strip club bouncer to part-time retail to, to where you're at now? Where, where, do you, where do you go from here? I mean, you've done wine. You're doing wine. No, yeah, I stopped, I stopped the wine. You stopped that. Once the FDA came in, I, my last vintage on wine was 2014. Okay. Um, I did five vintages. I go, okay, this is enough, and I have enough wine to last me a lifetime. Uh, so now I just share it with people. Um, I, uh, I don't know. I, I always have projects that I want to try to do. Um, I think what what's fun about the SNS Club is it gives us a way to express different art forms and find different things that the club members might like, but I don't have to like fully put my you know hat in the ring to do it um with the wine i put my hat in the ring and i was like okay i'm gonna try to do this and i realized i didn't have the time for it um yeah the the cigar industry is the reason why i'm able to play um so like with sns when we go to like will it and we pick out a few barrels of whiskey uh it, it's our it's their juice it's their it's their work but it's our you know expression of oh we think the club members will like it uh we put you know we put our little stamp of approval on it basically but you know we rely on making sure that that drew from willet makes he makes phenomenal juice so 
you know, some barrels we went through when we were there, I mean, you could tell he knew that, that I wasn't happy with certain barrels and he would literally, he'd be like, this one's shit. And he would throw it on top of another barrel. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it obviously needed a lot more time, but when we would find the right ones, he goes, okay, I'll put your name on that barrel. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I would love to, like, I saw that Kirk Kendall, you know, Kirk Kendall from uh, 724. Yeah. He's a good, he's a good friend. Uh, great, great retailer and great brand owner. Um, one of the coolest guys in the industry. He does, he does that expression with tequilas where he goes down to these distilleries and he's picking out barrels of tequilas for his, his store. And same thing with Jeff Borschwitz. You know, they get to go around the country and, and pick out these badass, you know, tequilas and whiskeys and vodkas or whatever that they're picking out, rums. Um, I think it's a lot of fun. It keeps you, uh, your art form expression, but you don't have to commit to it so much. Uh, One World wants to know about uh, your take on the whole Nick Jonas uh, cigar aficionado fallout. I said this to my club members because they were giving me shit about Nick Jonas uh, when I walked into Holtz this year. And I said, uh, if I hear one more Nick Jonas joke, I'm going to smack, I'm going to smack someone. And I go, and if you know it alls uh, who think, you know, about cigars want to ignore new people that come into mm-hmm. our world that show that they have appreciation for something and you want to ignore them because you know better than everybody else. Um, I think it's a disservice to the industry. And I think that we need to welcome as many people in. I'll tell you, Nick Jonas is a true cigar smoker. Like, not just not just a, uh, you know, an occasional guy that smokes a cigar here and there. This guy is like a, a fanatic. And he knows a lot about cigars. He's, he's found his passion for the ones he likes. I, I saw him recently at the Grand Havana Room. He was there two nights in a row. And that's where he goes to smoke cigars, you know, the fact that he's in town, you know, doing a movie premiere and he takes the time to finish the movie premiere and then go straight to the club to have a cigar to kind of finish off his night um, shows that he's just not a, a, an occasional cigar smoker. Uh, this kid grew up around him. Um, so I think, I think he was probably the, aside from Arnold being on, on the follow-up cover, he was like, the first guy in a long time that actually smoked cigars that was on the cover. So, and I, I, I thought it was sad to see people go like, Oh, this is bullshit. You know, like you would teeny bopper. He doesn't know anything about cigars. Like he's a, he's probably smokes more than most people. I think that kind of rolls into my next question is, I mean, you've seen a lot of changes in the industry since you've been in it. Right. We kind of talked about that and how even you've had an effect on the industry. What about the community at large? Like how, what have you seen change in the last 20 years in the cigar community. I mean, I think you kind of just touched on it now. And then like, what do you think needs to be changed within the community? I, I think just, like I said, they're just welcoming people in as much as possible. I mean, we're, we're not, we're not an industry that kind of, you know, force feeds people to smoke. It's not for everybody. People always ask me like, what do you do for a living? I go, well, I, I'm in a business that's, that's not for everybody. They're like, what's that? I go, I make cigars. And they're like, Oh, that sounds interesting. But I always preface it with, you know, it's not for everybody. It's, it's a, you know, a life choice that I made. And, 
I think that if someone takes a chance to to jump into it, we need to welcome them in as much as possible. Uh, we're not out recruiting people, but if if someone wants to enjoy a cigar, we should support it and uh, and you know have a conversation with the guys and you know find out maybe educate them if they if they're unsure about what they're doing. A lot of times you get a a new smoker that wants to be educated and the old guard won't won't take the time to educate them and it, they'll ignore them and they'll be like yeah you know I tried it it just wasn't for me because I enjoyed the cigar but I didn't really feel like I was part of anything you know I would walk into the cigar store and no one would talk to me I'd be sitting in the corner by myself smoking and I always wanted to get in the conversations with the other guys but they seemed kind of closed off to me so you know, I, I started smoking in hopes to uh, to meet people and to to you know to sit down and have a conversation about nothing um, with every walk of life, and not not feel like I'm an outcast. You know, I'm an outcast because I smoke cigars, because we're a small you know niche thing that people do, but we shouldn't be an outcast in a in a cigar store. <laughs> Absolutely, I, I think that's a big problem. Uh, in some cigar stores, not all, it's very clickish. It's very, if you don't know, if you come in as a new smoker and you don't know what you're talking about, it can, you can be pretty overwhelmed pretty quickly. Hey, can you, uh, can you do me a huge favor and, and think of a couple questions? I'm going to go grab a quick cigar. Sure. I don't want to jump off. I'm actually having a lot of fun talking to you guys. It's yeah. going to take me a, a few seconds to go grab this real quick. Absolutely. What'd you grab? It's uh, the, it's the same cigar I just finished. It's hitting my palate really good right now, so I want to make nice. sure I smoke another one. It's nice. um, four and three eighths by by fifty two uh, with a pigtail. What we call you know a lancero head. You know that's the whole thing is like a lancero. It's never been con- you know people think of lancero as a size because of the shape, but you know if you look at the factory, you know codes or factory names that that's always been considered a legato number one or or a, a long cervante or dahlia one of these skinnier cigars when we use the term lancero in the factory it always applies to the head so i know i go in and i say i need a cowboy one a four and three eighths by 52 with cabeza lancero and they know exactly what to put together if i say <laughs> i need to give them specific instructions to make a lancero shape <laughs> you know <laughs> so i saw you just you you pinched that off is that how you is that how you normally do that or is that just because of the pigtail oh i did it on this one because i didn't want to grab the cutter which is in the front here it's kind of holding up my phone <laughs> <laughs> all right fair enough fair enough what what cutter do you normally use i use i'm going to see if i can pull this out without falling but i i actually use one of ours it's just a perfect cut if i do use a cutter because it, it slices off the absolute perfect amount. Right. Um, and these blades on these things are super sharp. So like, I've never, I've never had a problem with these in the, you know, shit I've been making these since I was, uh, probably around 2004, I've been making the same cutter and, uh, just the blade has always been super sharp. And I've, I've had ones that have, you know, that are 10 years old. Occasionally you'll pull it apart and it'll snap. <laughs> completely apart <laughs> but uh right. the, the blades are super thin and i've never had a bad cut on them like i've never pinched the cigar with it um it's always been really good normally i use my thumbnail my thumbnails are really short right now so 
um, this the pigtail was easy because I just pop it off. Right. So what's your what's your favorite Vitola? I'm between kind of like between a 42 to a uh, 50, 52 on the high point. Um, I like I like a lot of petite robustos. I love robustos, obviously. I love Corona Gordas, five and five eighths by forty six. Um, but I've always been in love with uh, a cigar called the Casadori size, which is a like a Dahlia size, uh, six and three eighths by forty three. Uh, that's been in my my lineup since day one. And then um, I like Marevas, which are petite Coronas. If you think about Monte Four size, a five and one eighth by forty two. It's just a classic. Yeah, I think it's like. I always find that the the Mareva is kind of like the old man cigar. That's the that's the it cigar you, re, you, re, you retire with, and you you uh, you read a book and have a, a glass of something next to you. I I've, I've joked like, okay, I have a bunch of these put aside for myself for my retirement, and uh, I go, I'm gonna sit, you know, on my deck and uh, have a good view of something with a glass or a bottle of wine next to me, a Mareva and. Uh, maybe I'll start reading again, but like I, I hated reading when I was a kid. So I don't know about you, but I was never a reader. And when they would tell me I had to read a book for a class in, in, you know, grade school, I'd be like, I hate reading. Like, this is like the worst thing, like the most boring thing for me. I'll read the back cover. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I get everything in the last page. <laughs> <laughs> right. So when you're sitting down and you're going to have a drink, and you're going to relax because you still you say you still get those moments. What is it you're drinking? What do you what do you reach for? Not what should we reach for, but what does Pete Johnson reach for? I'm I'm all over the map. I obviously whiskey, wine. It really depends on my mood. Um, I was originally a rum guy, and then I found whiskey at the time when I started drinking rum. I found whiskey was the flavor profile I didn't like. And I found bourbon and I was like, wow, that's kind of a cross between the two. I still enjoy rum, but, um, I've been trying to get a distillery to do like a barrel proof rum. Uh, no one wants to do it. Uh, they're like, yeah, that's not, you know, I'd like to get an old, you know, an Yeho or a very old rum that's pulled out of a barrel, a single barrel. That's like high proof. They, no, no rum distiller does it like I even asked a rum distiller one time. I go, would you ever consider doing it? He goes, yeah, it's not, not what we do. I'm like, how about for me? <laughs> right. Do you not know who I am? Can we, can we, let's make this happen. There's got to <laughs> be somebody somewhere that'll do it for you. Well, I don't know. I'd probably have to go someplace where they make rum and convince someone really hardcore to let me, let me just pick a barrel. Like, <laughs> you know what? There's a, there's a local distillery here in town. I can see if they'd be open to it. Where are you at? Cedar Ridge. Uh, does uh, whiskey, um, they do rum, they do all kinds of stuff. They didn't used to, but now it's opened up. So, I've had some pretty horrible rum. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Small batch distillers. Yeah. My father gave me a rum one time. And he goes, oh, this stuff is pretty good. He goes, it's made by a, a local guy. And I poured a little bit in the glass. I was like, yeah, that's nothing I would want to put my name on. <laughs> yeah. I, I'll tell you what. I mean, if you're, if you're really open to it, I can grab a bottle for you and send it to you and you can 
decide for yourself. But they're pretty open to it. So Corey Taylor, or not Corey Taylor, the drummer from uh, Slipknot, just he worked with them, and he's got a couple of uh, whiskeys that he's put out from them. Oh, well, that's cool. I've been into to tequila lately. You know, good a higher end tequila, like not the tequila you grew up on that you got sick off of in high school. Right. <laughs> there's like, I don't know, like there's a lot of good tequilas. I think that's why a lot of people are actually doing tequila brands right now. Like you can get some amazing, fabulous tequilas that just don't remind you of that. You know, I threw up on tequila one time. <laughs> there was more than one time. There was more than one. There was more than one. No, I, I think I think it's just another expression of uh, flavor that I I was never I was like ah I'm never gonna drink tequila and then someone poured some tequila like really good tequila for me I was like wow I never expected that so like now I've been experimenting more. It's it it's weird, isn't it? When you look back and it, for me, I mean, I'm I'm the resident cranky old guy. Get off my lawn here at Simply Stogie. So it, it's for me, it's it's weird to look back at that kind of stuff through adult lenses, so to speak. Like as an adult, you look at tequila and rum and bourbon a lot different than you did as a kid, because as a kid, it was like, all right, what's going to get me fucked up the fastest. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I, I think my first bottle of, of cheap whiskey was Cuddy Sark. And I was like, can I mix this with something? <laughs> Anything? Yeah. Anything please. Yeah, it, Shit, man, just, we, we mixed Jägermeister with Gatorade one time because we couldn't stand the taste of Jägermeister. And then years <laughs> later, I was like, I love Jägermeister. Yeah, uh, it's 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 weird how that happens, but it happens with cigars too, right? Your first premium, and I'll put that in quotes, was the Pleiades or Pleiades. Yeah, Pleiades or however the French say it. Yeah, and that that was what, a, a $2.50 cigar? Is that what it was two fifty, yeah, but that was in you know nineteen ninety one, at uh, you know a different time, and that was a super expensive cigar. If you look at uh, if you look at when the La Gloria Cubana Wavel or Wavel came out, it was a dollar fifty. Yeah, when it first got rated in Cigar Aficionado, it got rated I think what ninety points, and it was a dollar fifty. Like Henry Clay's were a dollar, you know. <laughs> It's so funny because when you talk about the Henry Clay and you talked about how messed up it looked out of the box because it was just different shapes and the sharp edges. And would that fly today in today's cigar world? Would people look at it and go, yeah, I'll smoke that. I, I mean, I do it all the time. I mean, I, I wet pack cigars all the time where I, I throw them in the, in the bundle uh, when they're still a little fresh. So when they do sandwich in that, in that form, they start to get, you know, they start to press against each other a little bit. If you saw like even the early stages of uh, the K222 out of Miami, those were packed really probably within seven days of when they were produced. So they still had a lot of moisture in them. And yeah, they have some odd shapes to them. Not crazy as, not as crazy as Henry Clay. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, I don't know. There's something, there's something romantic about, you know, about a cigar just being a cigar. I, I actually gave that, uh, I've t talked about this a few times. I, I would turn everybody on to that cigar. Uh, when I, when they would come into my first shop that I worked at Gus's smoke shop, they're like, what do you recommend? I go, well, don't tell anybody I recommended you a dollar cigar, but, uh, because we were selling, you know, Ashton's and, and PGs and Abos back then, which were probably in the, you know, the five, $6 range back then. And, uh, 
of course, my boss was like, stop selling the Henry Clays. <laughs> like, <laughs> Not making any money off those. I would always turn people on to them. And uh, I ran into a guy at a, an event up in San Jose, California. And he goes, you have a, like a, your all-time favorite cigar? I go, yeah, that's a tough one. Are they all, I, they're all different. They're all experiences for me. And I go, I could probably give you five. He goes, hey, I, was, I got five. And he started going through this list of five, and he started talking about Henry Clay and how it was described to him and why he bought it. I go, dude, I sold you that cigar. <laughs> that was me. Yeah, no, and it, dude, the guy like literally started tearing up, and his his hair jumped off of his his arms. Wow! And he goes, and he looks at me, he goes, "Holy shit, that was you!" This is twenty five years later that he still remembered that cigar and exactly what I told him. I go, don't judge the book by its cover. It's, it's going to be ugly. It's going to look rustic and it could be one of the most fun experiences you've ever had with flavor. And he's like, Holy crap. That was you. That's, that's awesome. awesome. I, that's, that's, I've I, I, I heard you tell that story and that, that story still just amazes me how, Number one, how a cigar can impact somebody, because it's all about, I mean, when you think about a cigar, it's a celebration, right? Every time you have a cigar, I've heard people describe it as that. It's a celebration. And so mm -hmm. it's what's going on in your life at that moment. You'll, you'll always connect a certain cigar to that certain moment. Yeah. So that's just, that's, that's such a great story. And so when we talk about moments, and there are a couple of people who've asked about this uh, on the forums. And I wish I could find their name right now in my list here, but I, I, I'm not seeing it. But you grew up in Maine. Like yeah. how, how did that affect kind of what you do and your inspiration? How do you draw from that? I, I grew up you know, in, in a small town. or It's actually a, a historic city, but it's 6,000 people. I, I, I kind of live in the past sometimes. I think that's why I love history. My dad was a history teacher. I have very good parents. They, 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 they – uh, even as much as I was a little bit of a rebel when I was growing up because I wanted to be a rock star and like, I'm not coming home tonight. You know, I'm going to go steal a <laughs> bottle of Boone's farm and, you know, do stupid shit. Uh, they, they had a lot of patience with me. And, uh, I remember I, I, I took a, I took speed when I was younger and I didn't come home until like four in the morning and I think it was because I was scared to go home, but I remember my brother who works with me now, my older brother, well, my only older brother, he actually, he, he was the person in the family designated to give me the talk. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just kind of one of those things like, dude, I'm, I, I don't have an addictive personality when it comes to this stuff. So like, I, I just wanted to try it. I mean, it was a, when you're in a small town in Maine, you, you try to, you experiment with a lot of different things because you're trying to find a way to get out of the state. You know? right, right. Let me out of here. I understand that. But fast forward years later, I ended up buying two buildings in my hometown of Maine because of, of the nostalgia part of it. Wow. Like I own a, a an old bank from 1890 that, uh, that I tore apart and was started to renovate it. But then I, I just realized it was a bigger project than I could afford but I love the fact that I have the building. Uh, hopefully one day I can finish it. Does that come with, does that come with age? 
Do you think just experience, yeah. like looking back at, at the whole nostalgia bit? I mean, I feel like there's a lot in in society and culture, and in, in even in the cigar community, that kind of gets lost, um, especially when you deal with the youth that's coming in, the fresh blood, uh, so to speak. But I mean, when you start looking back and you start looking at things, and which is why I asked you about, you know, you 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 were the disruptor, and now you're the guardian of <laughs> the champion of of, of, of what we had. Well, okay, so I made a lot of stupid mistakes when I was younger, a lot. And I think it comes with age, and you finally grow up and realize you can't be an idiot kid anymore. And it's time to grow up and be responsible and, you know, put on a suit every once in a while. (laughs) I don't do it that often. Yeah, every once in a while. Hey, I can rock a suit, trust me. (laughs) I... I just, I think, yeah, it comes with age, man. You just, you just want, I mean, I think what the biggest lesson I learned over the, over the, the course of, of my career is it's more of a respect thing. Like I don't want to walk into a room, you know, in t-shirts and a jean, you know, t-shirts and jeans all the time when all my peers and mentors are, you know, wearing you know, nice clothes, I feel like, okay, now I feel like a slob. So I think it's, it comes with respect more than anything. It's like, I want to, I want them to look at me like, okay, he's not a kid anymore. He actually, he's on a, he's on a better path to uh, help educate the industry. That's why I did the documentary. That was my way to give back to the industry. uh, Something that, you know, to an industry that took me in and never really tried to push me out. That was my way to give back and say, "Hey, thank you for letting me part of, be part of this uh, this ride." Because uh, the industry is amazing, a lot of great people. in In the industry today, do you see new players come in and you're like, "That's me," like that's who I was. And do you want to like so like the Garcias, yeah, right? Like you guys like when I was younger, to- yeah, like a little bit a uh, little bit uh, off the wall, maybe. <laughs> Like, listen, man, I've watched a lot of guys grow up when, when, even when Matt Booth got into the industry or even John Huber, we all were like, Hey, let's party, man. This is, you know, we're young. We're, we're the kids in this industry. Uh, let's go have a drink, maybe have 10 of them and get wasted and act like a fucking idiot. And the next day we're like, ah, man, you know, I was around some really good people last night. I hope they didn't look bad upon me. You know, like, I didn't, I hope they didn't look at me and say, uh, this kid needs to grow up. And that, again, I've made a lot of mistakes and I've seen a lot of those guys, you know, John's grown up a lot. Matt's grown up a lot. I mean, we all learn from our mistakes and, and realize that uh, we can be better people. And I think even John's a big protector of the past and the history. I, I think it's, I think it's just age, man. You just want to, you just want to show a little bit of respect back to uh, an industry that uh, has given you respect this whole time. You think you'll ever, you'll find somebody that you can kind of take under your wing and be like, Hey man, this is how we do things. Let's. I've, I've always been very open uh, with people at events that, you know, even if they're, they tell me, Oh, I'm, I'm, I've been trying to make my own cigar. And they're like, I've always, they've always asked like, what do you do? And I go, well, I go, I, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the past when it comes to cigars. I'm a big fan of uh, history. So I've always followed the history of cigar and the history of cigar making. So I, I try to kind of focus on 
paying homage to the history because the history is where we all learn from. And like when people tell me that they, you know, modeled their cigar company after, after Tatawai, I'm like, what portion of Tatawai? (laughs) (laughs) What did you model it after? Did you model it after you seeing me partying when I was younger? Because that, that I wouldn't recommend as like a, a lifelong thing to follow. Right. But I, and I'll, I'll be, I'll be honest. I see a lot of new guys uh, that have their own brands that, that are out there being complete idiots and acting like, you know, I hate to say this like clowns and I, I can see myself going, I was that guy. I was, sometimes I was a little bit of a clown sometimes. And, but, but you're also the guy in the industry that calls other guys out on their bullshit. Yeah. So I have a problem with bullshit. (laughs) So couldn't you call these young kids out when they, when they like call them out for being young kids and be like, Hey, look, I get it. I was there. No. Yeah. uh, I mean, or is it something that they just kind of have to learn on their own? I think they have to learn it on their own. I, I, I pay respect to the people that are really like solid in what they're doing. Like Nick Melillo, solid guy. Um, he he's well educated in tobacco. He's well educated in the history of cigars. He respects the tradition of it. Uh, he's got a, a different style than a lot of people. Um, you just know that he's a great add-on to the industry by having a one-minute conversation with a the guy. There's no bullshit with Nick. There's no bullshit with John. Um, uh, John's an older guard, part of the old guard. Also, I have a problem with the romance level. You know, you can romance the cigar, but don't don't try to fool people because someone's going to call you out on it eventually. And it might be you. I I uh I mean I was I was kind of dead set against Andre Farkas from Viaje early on, and we ended up becoming friends. So I know that I can walk into a room with Andre and have a good conversation with him now. But early on, I was like, I think he's full of shit. I think he's trying to you know tell a lie and like. Maybe I was a little too vocal about it, but uh, now I know that I can sit in a room with him and have a pleasant conversation, which I'm happy about. I think I grew up a lot too, though. Yeah, I I can see that. I mean, do you think that you would call people out on their bullshit now, or would you wait and kind of like wait and see? Well, I've called a few people out, but more privately than ever. <laughs> Maybe not as vocal as I used to be. This kid from Dapper. Uh, you know, dapper cigars. Oh yeah. I think, I think he's doing the right thing. He's not romancing, you know, any bullshit. He's just making a solid cigar and he's got cool branding, cool imagery on his bands. You know, some of them are a little alternative like Baracho or whatever, but which means drunk. (laughs) (laughs) But I, I think he's, he's, uh, paying a lot of respect to the tradition of, of cigar making. And I don't think he's trying to get all crazy with it. Do you think there can people still get into the industry like with everything that's coming down with the FDA and everything else, or is it kind of closed now? No, no people are, I mean, technically no one's supposed to be really getting into the industry. If you didn't have a cigar, you know, out before 2016. Right. But what I'm seeing a lot lately is a lot of people are utilizing predicate or, you know, pre 16 blends. And they're modeling and sizes and packaging formats. And they're coming out with brand new cigars. I was like, I didn't know you could do that. 
when it comes to a traditional cigar, everything could be substantially equivalent, right? Sure. But when you're starting to come out with like crazy, you know, cigars that might be infused with crazy, you know, alternative things, you're like, man, that's that 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 thing that you're infusing with wasn't even in existence in 2016. So I don't even know how they're getting away with it, but you know, Hey, they're doing well with them. So I've heard you say that you like regulation, self regulation, self regulation. Yeah. Which is a much different than government regulation, right? Yeah. Because I mean, government regulation would be okay if it was actually government regulation, but the FDA is not the government. <laughs> I agree. Bureaucrats are not the government. That's that's I yeah. privately held fucking company. That's just destroying us. Because they can. (laughs) Right, exactly. It's very arbitrary. And it's not just us. And when I say us, I mean you guys in the industry. I mean, it's it's all these countries that that produce tobacco and employ people in those countries to produce the cigars from 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 seed to cigar. And so I think it's pretty short sighted on on the FDA's part, kind of what they're doing and how they're going about it. Yeah, it's just silly, man. There's no way that, you know. The substantial equivalence thing is ridiculous because we're not a machine. We don't make the exact same product every time. Even when we're trying to make the exact same product all the time, it's never the exact same product. Right. The roller, it's a handmade product. The roller could accidentally put, you know, one half a leaf of Lajero into a blend that doesn't really alter the flavor as much as someone could notice, but it might alter the nicotine content and now that's not substantially equivalent because it went over the nicotine level you know that it's just so stupid it, it doesn't make sense we're, we're not we're not blending cigarette tobacco you know cigarette tobacco with uh, with paper and formaldehyde in a you know a chemical basis and going we can make a billion of these a minute it, it will always be <laughs> right. the same how do you educate people on that? Because when uh, cigarettes get thrown in with cigars or vice versa, it's the most ridiculous. And this is coming from somebody who used to smoke cigarettes. I mean, it's the most ridiculous argument I've ever encountered. Like just the mental gymnastics needed to, to conflate the two is mind boggling. It's frustrating, man. I I got called out by a a customs guy one time. We're coming back from the Dominican Republic. I was at pro cigar. And he happened to see, like, he, he recognized Carlito Fuente uh, coming through customs like two days earlier. And he straight up asked me, he goes, where have you been? I go, the Dominican Republic. He goes, what for? I go, for business. He goes, what do you do? I go, I'm in the cigar industry. I was down there for a festival. And he goes, well, that festival's over because I saw Carlito Fuente come through already. And I go, yeah, but the, he, Carlito left early and – we stayed a, a day later to hang out with a few of our friends in the cigar industry. And he goes, and he didn't believe me. And then he goes, yeah, smoking is bad for you, man. And I go, and that's your position. Why? He goes, my grandfather died of cancer. I go, was he a cigarette smoker or a cigar smoker? He goes, cigarettes. I go, it's a different animal. It's a totally different thing. And I go, and, and what makes you, I go, where's your supervisor? Because you have no position to tell me, that I shouldn't be making cigars or smoking cigars. This is not your job. I, I got pretty pissed off about it. Actually, I always get pretty pissed off about it too. Cause I hear that all the time. I, even with my wife, when I started this, I had to convince her. It's like, look, this isn't, 
it's, it's not cigarettes. Like it's not going to become an addiction. And 700 cigars in three winadors later, it might be a little bit of a of a, of a, of a addictive addictive hobby. Yeah, maybe. Oh. I mean, okay. So I I always say that I don't have an addictive personality because, like, if I if I tried marijuana, I like okay, it's not for me. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do it. If I tried cocaine. Uh, one time when I was younger, I was like, oh, this is disgusting. Why would anybody really like this? Right. I, I was never addicted to stuff like that. I, I was never addicted to drugs, thankfully. I think the most addictive thing that I have really is like when I go down that rabbit hole, I start buying too much. Yep, me too. <laughs> like I, I went down the beer rabbit hole and I bought like pallets of beer. And I don't even drink beer anymore. <laughs> Do you still have pallets of beer laying around? Yeah, dude. I bought a pallet of Prairie Bomb. Wow. Mainly because someone told me I couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> but then I was I was drinking it. But at the same time, I was like, I, I really like Prairie Bomb when it's a little older. Like when it's been sitting for a little bit, right? So I, every time I'd go into the, the room where I had all the beer, I'm like, I'll wait on the Prairie Bomb because it's not ready. I'll drink something else. And then by the time I got to be ready for the prairie bomb, I stopped drinking beer. Stopped drinking <laughs> beer. Yeah. So I started giving it away. Um, the same thing with, with whiskeys, you know, bourbons. But normally I'll, I'll go out and buy bourbons and drink them. And then I'll have to go buy more and drink them. But then eventually I'm like, wow, I got a lot of bourbon. Where did it all come from? So yeah. the same thing with scotch right now. I like I have a bunch of scotches, and now with tequila, I have a bunch of tequila. Uh, shit, I have six bottles of tequila showing up next week. Wow! It, just because I want to try different expressions. Yeah, and it's the same way with me and cigars. I, I I try to keep it to one hobby. I mean, it's just the cigars right now. But <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've gone down. I've gone down the whiskey rabbit hole. I've gone down like the same with you. I mean, you go down the rabbit hole. It's not an addictive personality. It's just I want to try all the things, and then I find what I like. I'm like, well, I'll just buy more of what I like, and I'll have that, and then keep it. And it just I did that with Willet. Like you know, like I found Willet, and I was like, oh, this shit's really good. And then when I started picking barrels from Willet, and I was like okay, now I have to have all these special releases that they're doing. But like, we went to a charity auction one time at, at in Bardstown that Drew was uh, hosting, and I, I bid on something that I knew the money was going to charity, and the bottle ended up costing me a lot of money, and everybody's like, what are you going to do with it? I go, we're going to drink it right now. And they all looked at me like I was fucking crazy. <laughs> and I think, I think there was like six people that got pours because I poured everybody really heavy. I wanted to make sure I had a big cup of it and maybe eight people, <laughs> but the bottle went really quick, really quick. Yeah. And they're like, I can't believe you just opened that man. That, that was like really expensive. I go, yeah, but it was for charity. So it's not, it, I go, and it's supposed to be enjoyed. I went, when I started with cigar smoking, it was the same thing though. I went around and experimented and like, okay, I want to try that one. I want to try that one which one smokes really well, which one smells really good. And then eventually I was like, okay, that one smells good and smokes good. I'm going to buy a box of it. And before I know it, I'm like, oh shit, I have a little extra money. I'm going to go buy another box or something. I still have cigars from 27 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I'm afraid that that's, I'm going to end up in 20 years and go, oh, man, I remember that. The first year I started smoking cigars, I bought this box. Holy cow, how is this still in here? Funny that you say that, though, because uh, my buddy Dan, when he first started smoking, he was smoking just some random stuff. And I go, dude, that, that cigar is no good. And he, he goes back and reminds me every once in a while. He's like, dude, I can't believe I smoked that shit. <laughs> That's I, I and it's funny you say that because so I just started smoking cigars uh last June. Yeah. And, and it's this turned into this this hobby, this passion project of mine. I absolutely love it and I love the industry and I love the community and I love all the things that that come along with it. My wife maybe not so much all of it, but she's enjoys that uh, you know that I enjoy it. And what I started with and what I am now smoking are miles apart. Yeah. And so it's it's funny that you say that because I think that's the same for everybody. And even your journey was the same. I mean, you smoked the what the the Pilatus, and now I'm guessing you don't don't smoke those anymore. No, actually, and I evolved out of Pilatus uh, pretty quick. Uh, that was one of those cigars that it happened to be super light, super easy to smoke. But I wanted a little bit more out of it, and I I started you know traveling through the world of cigars. I mean, there's there were cigars I stopped smoking because I. I was like, man, these taste really good, but they smell horrible. Like you walk away from them and it smelled like, you know, it was, you know, someone had just cleaned Mr. Clean around you or something. I'm like, okay, this can't be good. And that's where my first experience with ammonia coming off tobacco was. And I, I never touched that brand again to the, to the point where I knew where that cigar was made. And to this day, I can still smell cigars that are made in that factory and go, it was made here. And people are like, yeah, how'd you know? I go, the smell. Wow. And they're like, how do you even know that? <laughs> I go, it's part of my sense memory. But you've always been like that. I, 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 in the, again, another podcast that you were on that I listened to, you talked about how you were always in the humidor, always in the humidor, always in the humidor, always learning, always learning, like you knew price points. So they eventually put you on the register because people would come up and you'd go, yeah, this one's this much, this one's this much. Yeah. So is that just part of how you're built and, or is it like you're so passionate about cigars and tobacco that you wanted to learn because you, you actually went to school, you took a night class to start Tatuaje to learn how to do that. Well, to learn how to set up a business. I had no idea what it took to set up a business. Um, I think, I think what drove me into uh, wanting to learn about cigars more is the people that I met from cigars. Like the first store I worked in was a small store, but the crowd of people that would come in that would, didn't matter how old they were or how rich they were, they welcomed you. And that made me want to learn more about the culture and the craft even more. So I would just spend a lot of time trying to figure out what cigar is what and what country is what. It, it, it all started with the people. I mean, then you start meeting the cigar makers and you're like, man, these people are really cool people. They're really nice. They, they kind of take the time and sit down with you and, and educate you. I'm like, this industry is amazing compared to the music industry that I came from. <laughs> Man, the music industry is rough. Yeah. That is rough. But, I mean, it's it, it can be that way with any industry. I mean, even to some degree, the cigar industry. I mean, you view it differently than what I've heard other people view it. 
because I, I talked about how everyone, like somebody thinks that above board, everyone's nice to everybody, shaking hands. We're all one big happy family. And underneath it's guns are drawn, but you're like, it's not like that. So is it just perception? Is it is it the people that you surround yourself with versus who maybe others surround themselves with within the industry? Listen, man, I, there's a couple of people I just choose not to associate with in the industry just because we've had we've had words. Sure. I just steered to you know steer away from them, and it's better for me to associate myself with you know the people that I can actually sit in a room and have a conversation with. We all have differences of opinion. We all can sit at a table and have an argument, but it's a civil argument. And we can try to figure out where the common points are and figure out the better path as a group. I found that that's something that lacks most of the time in society today, but it doesn't lack in the cigar community. I don't think I've ever seen uh, in, in, in a B&M or in a lounge a, a knockdown drag out argument. It's always very civil. Yeah, I, I've seen a couple of them, but at the end of it, you know, they, they each call each other fucking asshole. And then next thing you know, they're like, let's go get a drink. Right. <laughs> so, or can I buy you a cigar? Yeah, I've, yeah. I've, I've seen some uh, pretty interesting conversations before they got heated. And I'm like, do they argue like this normally? They're like, no, they're best friends. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> so you've talked about uh, the opening a lounge. A, a Tatuaje Lounge, um, maybe next door to where you're at in LA. That was a long time ago, the, and it never happened. So, are you? Is that dream done? Is that dead? Uh, you know, honestly, it, it all <clears throat> comes from uh, making sure that I have the time to put into it. And you know, like my office is pretty empty now. Um, the upper portion of my office in Los Angeles is actually my house. Uh, that's where I lived for multiple years and now i don't live in that building anymore i'm like man this is kind of a big waste of space maybe i should turn this into a lounge for when people come out they can actually have a place to smoke yeah um that would be nice but i mean i also know that we have a small crew at the office that that doesn't have a lot of time to take breaks uh to uh cater to people coming by the office (laughs) right I mean, I have a lot of dreams to do a lot of, uh, you know, welcoming things, but it, it, it's not always the case. I want to thank you uh, for sitting down and taking the time with us today. I, I, what I want to do is what I'd like to do is to open this up to some of the uh, Simply Stogies members that are still on the call with us. If they have questions, if you have time, Pete. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I have a lot. Of, I'm, I'm just sitting here smoking a cigar, so I'm good. You, you remember so what you asked about? Uh, you asked about taking the time to just relax. This is a perfect yeah. opportunity. That's awesome. That's awesome. So thanks again for for joining us uh, today, Pete. Uh, If you'd like to join simplystogies.club, send me an email at info at simplystogies.com or uh, you can send me a DM at simplystogiespodcast on Instagram or at simplystogies on Instagram. Thank you for listening to Simply Stogies. Please rate and review Simply Stogies on iTunes. You can follow James on his cigar journey on Instagram at simplystogiespodcast, all one word. And on Twitter at the Twitter handle at Simply Stogies.